Walking in sunlight all of my journey, over the mountain, through the deep hill. Jesus has said, I'll never forsake thee, promise divine that never can fail. Heavenly sunlight, heavenly
Bibles, please, this morning to the book of 1 Peter. You might want to put a ribbon or a bookmark there as we're beginning a brand new series, as you see. And it'll take us a while to get through uh, this book, and I hope it'll be a blessing to you. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1 and 1 Peter chapter 5 today. I'm afraid that uh, many Christians are operating under a false assumption. Um, They assume that since they are followers of Jesus Christ, their lives should be smooth and easy and relatively trouble-free. But then life happens and troubles come. And with an assumption like I just mentioned, their faith can be rocked to its very core. But where did this false assumption come from in the first place? This idea that if we're followers of Jesus, everything's going to be sunshine and roses from then on. Well, it certainly did not come from the Bible. In fact, the Bible presents the opposite picture. We could even go so far as to say that the the Bible says basically come to Jesus and your life will get harder in many ways. Come to Jesus and your life will get harder in many ways. So what do you mean? Preacher, Well, being a Christian puts you at odds with the world. You now have different desires, different beliefs. You live a different lifestyle. You're out of step with our politically correct society. Uh, Your beliefs are considered outdated, old-fashioned, bigoted, and even hateful. And so now you're a Christian, you're a Christ follower... And you not only have to contend with the problems that come from living in a sin-cursed, fallen world and all that comes with that, but to compound matters, you now have the problem of being different, of being out of step with the society at large. And we as American Christians are beginning to experience this like we never have before. We've lived most of our time, beloved, with some pushback, of course, but nothing like we're seeing today. I think uh, Haddon Robinson put it the best as we summarize him. He said, in the past, we as American Christians always had home field advantage. You knew that in the crowd there were those from the other team who were opposed to us, but the larger stadium crowd was either on our side or indifferent to our witness as Christians. All that has changed. Now we play all of our games on enemy turf. A minority is on our side, but the wider culture sits in the stands shouting hateful epitaphs at us, rejoicing at our losses. I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. You may remember from your days of playing sports, or maybe you play them now. There's a difference when you're the home team and the away team. But now we're always the away team. And the crowd at large is against us. Now, sometimes we may be tempted to think like this. Well, if we just lived back in Bible days, if we've lived closer to the days of Jesus, then life would be so much easier for us. And if we think that, it shows us that we do not know our Bibles very well. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. And we're going to see that as we begin studying today here the little book of 1 Peter, where we're calling it Hope for the Hurting. Hope for the Hurting. I don't know how much you know about the book of 1 Peter, But uh, this is a timely book for the day in which we live. I like how one study Bible described the book of 1 Peter. It said the culture in which they live scorned their faith, criticized their morality, and mocked their hope. 
And that's where we live right now. We live in a culture, beloved, that scorns our faith, criticizes our morality, and mocks the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the midst of a culture like we're living in, and the pushback that we're experiencing, and things we've never experienced before, really, in many regards, what we need is we need a fresh infusion of hope. We need hope. I love what Chuck Swindoll wrote and I ran across as I was preparing for today. He said, hope is a wonderful gift from God, a source of strength and courage in the face of life's harshest trials. When we're trapped in a tunnel of misery, hope points to the light at the end. When we're overworked and exhausted, hope gives us fresh energy. When we are discouraged, hope lifts our spirits. When we are tempted to quit, hope keeps us going. When we lose our way and confusion blurs the destination, hope dulls the edge of panic. When we struggle with a crippling disease or a lingering illness, hope helps us persevere beyond the pain. When we fear the worst, hope brings reminders that God is still in control. When we must endure the consequences of bad decisions, hope fuels our recovery. When we find ourselves unemployed, hope tells us we still have a future. When we're forced to sit back and wait, maybe you're there today, hope gives us the patience to trust. When we feel rejected and abandoned, hope reminds us we're not alone, we'll make it. And when we say our final farewell to someone we love, Hope in life beyond gets us through our grief. Put simply, when life hurts and dreams fade, nothing helps us like hope. Hope isn't merely a nice option that helps us temporarily clear a hurdle. It is essential to our survival. We must have hope. And beloved, we do. And I want to show you that this hope that we so desperately need as we dive in to the book of First Peter. Now, if you haven't already, you're in First Peter, chapter 1. And uh, we're going to be looking at some opening verses and some closing verses today, all right? First uh, Peter, chapter 1. We'll begin reading at verse 1. I have them on the screen. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, follow along in your lap there in your Bible if you do. First Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. And then we go from the very opening words to the closing words. Chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. The Bible says, By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now let's go back to chapter 1 again. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time today. And I want you to notice when you look at chapter 1, verse 1, we don't get very far in our reading before we're stopped in our tracks. In fact, we don't get very far before we realize if we grew up in church, our mind begins to work and our memory begins to bring up things. At the very first word, we see the word Peter. 
Peter. That's the very first word in the book. Peter. And we can stop and preach a whole message today on just that one word. Peter. Looking at his life. Looking at what God had done in his life. Looking at what God was doing in his life at this time. When you think about Peter, if you were brought up in church and Sunday school and, and Bible school and those sorts of things, probably some things surface in your mind. You might be thinking that Peter, you know, he often would stick his foot in his mouth. He would often speak out of place. You might think about his great failure when you think about Peter, who says, I won't deny you. I'll go to the grave. I'll, I'll be put to death before I deny you. And yet we know that he failed and he denied the Lord Jesus. Or you might think of something positive from his life. You might think about Peter on that night in the storm as the storm is raging and the Lord Jesus comes walking on the water and, and Peter also steps out of the boat and, and he walks on the water. Peter, who is the leader among the apostles. Peter, who, I'll just be honest with you, I love so much. I look at Peter's life and it's an encouragement to me and I realize how many times I'm like Peter in so many ways, in the bad regards, I should say, my failings. But that's who wrote this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And there's so much more we could say about him. But I want to say this. The Peter that's writing this book is no longer the weak Peter who denies his Lord. This is a Peter who has grown in his faith, who's matured in his faith, and who is writing to encourage his brethren. And he's not just writing as a friend. He's writing with authority. Because as you notice, it says Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So this is an authoritative letter inspired by the Holy Spirit, by the apostle Peter. Now, before we dive in too deep into those opening verses, I need to talk about the people who received the letter. The people he was writing to. And I need to tell you, they were suffering various trials. They were suffering in various ways. Let me show you some verses. You can jot the references down or follow along if you're fast. We did a sword drill in the teen class this morning. It's a lot of fun. And uh, some of them are very quick at finding it. And if you're fast, you can follow along. But at least jot them down if you can't do that. Notice some verses with me. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. They had various trials. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. For what credit is it if when you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14. Remember, they're suffering various trials. Look at what it says there. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you are partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are approached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Are you noticing a theme here? Troubles and suffering and these sorts of things. Notice 1 Peter 4.19. Therefore, let those who suffer, now notice this part, who suffer according to the will of God, commit their souls to him in doing good 
as to a faithful creator. You know now, I guess, why I called the series Hope for the Hurting. Because in various ways they were hurting. And I'm not immune to the fact, I'm not ignorant to the fact that in this congregation, and to those who will listen to this later on, there are many who are hurting. There are many who are suffering. There are many that are struggling with various trials. And you need hope. And you need help. And there are some things as a child of God you need to remember. And we'll look at those in just a moment. But let me just say this. What I'm about to say today applies to those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you are not saved, if you've not turned from your sin and placed your faith in Christ, I don't have much for you today in the way of hope. I don't have much for you. You know why, beloved? Because apart from Christ, there is no hope. And if you're here today without the Lord Jesus Christ, I beg of you, I plead with you, turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ alone. He loves you. He died for you. He shed His precious blood for you. He arose victorious for you. He desires to save you. He's not willing that any should perish. And if you'll come today, turning from your sin and placing your faith in Jesus Christ, you too will have the sure hope of eternal life. You'll have hope Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you who know Christ, and yet you're still struggling, and you still have various trials and issues, I want to remind you of some things today. And I want you to write them down. And I want you to follow along real closely. Because you need this. I need this. We all need this. So in the midst of trials and suffering, some things to remember as we dive into these opening verses. First of all, remember where you are. Remember where you are. Now you might be thinking, well, well, preacher, I know where I'm at. I'm at Red Hill Baptist Church. Well, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm glad you know that. But I want you to think about where you are. Peter here, as you noticed, it told us in the scriptures we read, he's writing from Babylon. We're not sure if that was the actual city of Babylon or if it was a code name for the city of Rome. He was writing in code because of suffering and persecution. He's writing to believers. We believe that they were a combination both of Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And it says that they were scattered abroad in five Roman provinces in Asia Minor. You saw it there, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Today we know that area is modern-day Turkey. That's where these believers were. And it was a letter that would have been going on a circuit, if you will, being read to these places. And it's interesting in these opening verses, he calls these people pilgrims of the dispersion. That means they're temporary residents who are scattered about in different areas. And can I just tell you, beloved, that can be said about every Christian today. We're temporary residents scattered about in different locales. The point I'm making today is this world is not our home. And we need to remember that we are not home. The world is not our home. Now, I know to some extent we have to settle down. We have to live and we have to carry on. And many of us here in this, unless you're a guest from outside, we consider this area our our home. We have lived here long enough. We consider this area our home. And I understand that. And we treasure those things and we enjoy those things. But what I'm saying is ultimately, 
This is not our home. As believers, heaven is our home. We're here just as pilgrims. We're temporary residents. You know, you ever gone on a trip and run into some difficulties? You're traveling far from home and you run into some trouble. Maybe you've ever been on a miserable trip. You ever been on a miserable trip? Perhaps you've been out and you've been flying somewhere. And you're flying home. And as you're flying along, you get on a flight and there's great turbulence. And there's a baby very close to you that's crying and won't quit. And there are weird smells in the cockpit wafting about. Maybe I'm telling myself this is the things I struggle with when I'm flying. And it seems that you're never going to get to the airport. And it keeps going on and on and on. And you just want to get to the airport. You could just land. And then finally, you land. And they make you sit on the plane. We can't get to the gate yet. You can't get off yet. And the baby's crying louder. And the smells are getting worse. And and the heat and the air is not flowing as it ought to. And and there's weird people around you. And you're ready to get off the airplane. And finally... They say you can get off and you wrestle down the aisle and you get out there and then you go down to get your luggage and your luggage just seems like it will never come. And everybody else's luggage comes and your luggage never comes. And you keep looking and looking and looking and finally your bag comes and you get that luggage and finally you make your way and you've got to get all the way across the airport to the parking lot and you wait on the shuttle and you get on the shuttle and that same baby's on the shuttle that was on the plane. And those same weird people and the same weird smells. And you can't wait to get to your car. And you finally get to the car. And you finally get out on the interstate. And all you could think was, if I can just get home. If I can just get home. And even if, if I get home, I may never travel again. If I can just get home. I just want to be home. I just want to get home. That's the way our life is many times. All the burdens and the trials and the struggles. And could it be, as I thought about this, could it be that one of the reasons that God allows so many difficulties in the first place is to make us to be more homesick for heaven? To really desire to go home. To long for heaven To long to be with Jesus. To long to be in a place where all things are perfect and right and we are perfect and right. Because we have all these struggles we deal with out here and then we have the struggles we deal with inside of us. And the battle that rages and the struggles with temptation and the struggles with decisions and and the struggles, am I going to trust God or not? Am I going to follow God or not? We've got to remember that we're temporary residents. We're pilgrims passing through. I love what David Jeremiah said. He said, Peter's letter, 1 Peter, is a reminder for Christian pilgrims to look at their passports occasionally. And remember, we're citizens of another kingdom, purchased by the blood of Jesus and headed toward an inheritance that can never Away. Think about that as we study. This is like looking at our passport and being reminded, I'm not home yet. I'm not home yet, but I have a home 
and I'm headed there. So when trials are coming and all these issues, remember, first of all, where you are. You're not home yet. Remember where you are. And then secondly, remember who you are. Remember who you are. Look again at verse 2 of chapter 1. It's a rich verse. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Now, that is a wonderfully rich verse. And we just tell you this. If you're a Christian, that verse describes what happened to you when you got saved. Let's kind of take it apart a little bit. Notice, first of all, that you are chosen. Notice it says, elect, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, I don't know if that encourages you like it does me, but think about this. If you're a child of God, you're chosen by God the Father. You're chosen. Maybe you haven't been chosen for much in your life. Maybe you were like some of us, you know, when it's time to, to pick teams. You've got the two captains there and you're lined up. You, you knew you weren't going to get chosen. You weren't going to get chosen to the end. Or maybe they would just take you because they had to. But I want to tell you, child of God, you're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The word is elect. And the word elect or election, it scares a lot of people. There's a lot of debate about that. And um, you, you might be thinking, well, Pastor, are you a Calvinist? Do you really believe in the election uh, of saints and all that? Or are you more Arminian and you believe that man is free and, and man has the choice? Well, if you were to ask me that, I would simply say to you that I'm a Bible believer. And I believe in both because the Bible teaches both. The Bible teaches election and it teaches that we have a free will. You say, well, how can you resolve that in your mind? How is that possible that we are chosen but free? How do you resolve that? I don't and I can't. I just let God be God. Let Him sort it out. It's no challenge for Him. The problem's with my understanding, not His. And the Bible says we're chosen, but we have to believe. It teaches both. It teaches both. Before we can respond in faith, He has to call us by His Spirit. It's just that simple. Say, well, I can't understand that. I can't either. But I believe it because God's Word teaches it. Now let God sort it all out. And so we're chosen by God. We're chosen by God. Elect by God. And then notice, not only are we chosen, but we're set apart. We're set apart. Look back at that verse. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit. We're set apart. To be sanctified. Now you've got to think with me this morning. Don't, don't zone out on me. To be sanctified means to be set apart. It, it means to be consecrated to God. And so there was a day when this building was built. And they would have had a service to, to dedicate, I assume, this building. And when they did it, they set it apart. This is a building we're going to use in the honor and glory of God. And so they set it apart. Now, we often think about sanctification as a process whereby we're made more holy. And that is part of sanctification. See, there are different stages, if you will, of sanctification. There is positional sanctification. That's the moment when you're saved. And when you're saved, the Holy Spirit sets you apart for God. You belong to God now. Your life is God. You're going to live your life for God. You're made 
new in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's positional. You're positioned in Christ. You're positioned set apart for God. But then there's something we would call progressive sanctification. You hear progress, right? And that's the Spirit's work day by day in our lives to make us more like Jesus. And He uses the Word and prayer and church and Sunday school and trials and all sorts of things. And He molds us and shapes us and He's forming us to be like Jesus. That's progressive sanctification. Growing more in our faith. So we've got positional, we're in Christ. We've got progressive, we're growing on. That's not done yet. And then we could get to the final one, which we would call, I would call perfect sanctification. And that's when you're fully like Jesus. We're not there yet. But when we see Him, we shall be like Him. And we'll be made perfect and whole, glorified. So don't give up on each other. Don't give up on me. This is not the finished product. Amen. It's not the finished product. I'm not going to give up on you. You're not the finished product. We're progressing. And one day we'll be there. So notice what's happening here. Are you still tracking with me? God chooses you. The Holy Spirit sets you apart. And then it says you're obedient to the sprinkling of the blood. Notice what it says. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of who? Jesus Christ. Now, this idea here of obedience is the idea of initial obedience. It means when we respond in obedience, in other words, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. This is saving faith. God the Father chooses you. The Holy Spirit works in your life, sets you apart, and you respond in faith, obedience, and you are forgiven. You are forgiven. We read chapter 5, verse 12. It says that we stand in the grace of God. We read chapter 5, verse 14. It says that we have peace in Christ Jesus. Now think about this. Think about your hard days. How encouraging is it for you to remember on your hard days? Number one, you're chosen by God the Father. Number two, you're set apart by God the Holy Spirit. And number three, you're forgiven through the blood of God the Lord Jesus Christ. That's encouraging. That is hope. That is helpful. Remember who you are. You're a child of the King. You're a child of God. Which brings me to that third thing I want you to remember. Where you are, who you are now, remember whose you are. You surely notice by now the Trinity, all three members of the Trinity are mentioned in verse number 2. And I hope that you notice that all of them are active in your redemption, in your getting saved. This is a blessed thought. You are a child of God. He holds your life in His hands. Hey, mark this down. Your life is never out of control because it's under His control. Your life is never out of control. It's under His control. The reason we struggle sometimes is we think we're in control. We're never in control. He's in control. And so our life may seem like it's just spiraling out of control, but it's not. It's under His control. We often dread the wrong thing. Did you know that? We often dread the wrong thing. As I was studying, William Harrell, who kind of put me onto this, we dread suffering. We dread trials. We dread pain. We dread those sorts of things. We don't want to suffer. We don't want pain. We don't want difficulties. We don't want trials. We dread those things. But he pointed out something very important. 
we're dreading the wrong thing. It's not suffering that we should dread. It's sin that we should dread. We should dread sin. He he mentioned that suffering doesn't ultimately harm us. God uses it to build up our faith and to edify us. Our, Our sufferings are actually servants that bring about good. It's our sin that harms us. And as believers, if we're honest, we really do dread suffering more than we dread sin. That needs to change. We need to remember that God uses the sufferings in our lives. Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. It's through our suffering many times that God matures us and molds us and shapes us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Same book, 1 Peter 2, verse 21. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps. So part of following Jesus is following Jesus in His sufferings. And we know we'll never get to the extent that He did, but we're to follow Him as He works in our life. Now, I enlisted the help of my middle son, Gabe, in preparing for today. And I have his permission to tell you this. He and I have been going through a workbook study on the book of First Peter. And in our very first lesson, as we were talking through it, he had completed it and I completed it, and uh, we were talking through it. In the very first lesson, the last question that it had in the book said, Why does God let us suffer? Why does God let us suffer? And so I asked Gabe that what his answer was. And he said, because he loves us. And so I played the surprised party. I said, really? Really? And Gabe began to backtrack. Come up with another answer and I stopped him. And I said, no. You got it right. You got it right. It's a profound truth. God lets us suffer because He loves us. Now, I want you to process because I know when you hear that, you probably want to play this surprise party too. Really? But let's think about it for a moment. God lets us suffer because He loves us. It pointed us to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. Listen to what it says. You've got it there in front of you? Look at verse 7. He just said in verse 6, you're grieved by various trials. Verse 7 says that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, there's a purpose in the trials you're experiencing. There's a purpose in the suffering you're enduring. And let me encourage you, beloved. We can understand this even from our own lives. Moms and dads, whether you've got kids at home or they're already grown, are there not times where you let your children mess up and suffer the consequences? Why? Because you want to mature them. You want to grow them. You want them to learn. And so why do we thank our Heavenly Father would be unwise in doing that in our lives. 
if everything was sunshine and roses, how in the world are we going to get matured and shaped into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ? But I, I don't want to discourage you because we're saying, okay, God lets us suffer because he loves us. And that's a hard truth at times, depending on what kind of suffering you're going through. But I want to remind you of something else. And that is because of where you are and because of who you are and because of whose you are, mark this down, your sufferings, your trials, they're temporary. We just read chapter 1, verse 7. Go back to chapter 1, verse 6. I love the phrase. Chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now, for a little while. For a little while. For a little while. If need be, you've been grieved by various trials. I wrote it out like this. Trials for a little while. Child of God, that's what we're experiencing. Just just trials for a little while. You say, well, preacher, it's been years. Oh, it's just a little while. I mean, the oldest among us, look at their life and their years. What is that in regards to eternity? Forever. Trials for a little while. Beloved, we often think this way. If God loves me, why does he make me go through this? We need to reframe that. And say it this way, because God loves me, he lets me go through this. He has my good and his glory in mind. Be encouraged, child of God, because of where you are, because of who you are, because of whose you are, the trials you're enduring, they have a purpose. God is using them and they're only trials for a little while. Let's bow in prayer. Father, I want to praise you today for what you're teaching us. And I'll be honest, Lord, some of this truth is hard for us to absorb. And it goes against our thinking. But we know the Bible says that your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts are greater than our thoughts. And we've seen it in the Word of God today. That there's a purpose in our suffering. There's a purpose in our trials. And they're temporary. And they're beneficial. And they're working in us to bring about being like Jesus. Now, Father, I pray today, if anybody here does not know Christ as Lord and Savior, you would bring them to saving faith. And then I pray, Lord, for those that are in the midst of trials and sufferings today, that you would seal these truths to their heart. That they could begin to look at things in a new light and realize that even though it's hard and even though it hurts, you're working for their good. And you really do love them. It's because of your love. You're allowing them to endure these trials. But you're with them in the midst of them. And you're holding them. And you're shaping them. And you're maturing them. 
to be like Jesus. Help us to be faithful, O God. Help us to trust you. Help us to follow you. Help us to love you. Help us to keep our faith in you. We pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Our closing hymn, and the altar is open today. If you need to be saved, we'd love to talk with you about that. If you want to just come and pray, because maybe that's your need today, the altar is open. I felt the appropriate song to sing would be 424. 424, I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my distress, He kindly will help me. He ever loves and cares for His own. Let's stand together. You come if you need to. Doctor, you're 424. Let's stand together. Thank you.